Everybody enjoying the rain? Okay. I don't know um, what parent dropped their child off with a, a Patriots coat. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we've, we've called CFS, and um, we'd like to talk to you after the service. So just keep that in mind. I'll be up here afterwards. <laughs> oh, man. God's good, isn't he? Man. Man, I was just yesterday sitting down, enjoying the rain, and being blown away that, gosh, God has a phenomenal way of not only cleansing this world, but man, it's just kind of this, I was sitting there being reminded in my own life just how God, via the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, just ongoingly changes us and transforms us, and so we're just, man, we're blessed, and what we're doing is, is we're, we're in the book of 2 Corinthians, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians 9. If you don't have a Bible, um, there'll be some, some people potentially walking down the, uh, the aisles. Just raise your hand, um, and they'd be happy to get you a Bible. If, if you don't own a Bible, uh, feel free. Uh, just keep it. Um, it's our gift to you. Um, if you just need one to borrow today, uh, you, know, you can put it back at the end of the service, but we, we definitely want to get a Bible into your hands. What we've been uh, doing in looking at, at uh, 2 Corinthians is just trying to understand, if you remember, I, we talked about this idea that to understand Corinth in an interesting way, I think, is one, one culture and one letter that in a lot of ways, I think, explains us as Americans. And, and if you remember right, my very first message, and we've, keep, we've kept on repeating this idea, that, that they, they definitely, they were us and, and we are them. We, we, in so many ways, share characteristics with this group of people. And so I think this particular letter and 1 Corinthians, not that they're, they're more inspired than all of the other letters, but I think they really hit home for us and who we are because we can relate to this group of people. But what we've been doing in walking it through, we, we've, we've got to the point in chapter 8 in which Paul's going to talk about this gift that's supposed to be sent. And it's a gift that is being sent to a group of Christians in Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, who for different reasons have just hit hard times. They've been harassed. There could have even been a terrible drought in that particular area at the time. And so Paul had told the Corinthians about this. And in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, we learned that, man, they were, they were excited to give. And not only were they excited, but word began to spread all around. And there were some churches in Macedonia that then heard about this. And this, these churches in Macedonia, you got to understand, they were beleaguered. They were harassed. They were in a very similar position as the Jerusalem church. But yet it, is, it says in there that out of their poverty and out of their harassment, they gave beyond their means. In other words, they heard what the Corinthians were going to do, this rich church. And they then in turn gave like crazy. Now, Paul, though, has a falling out with the, the Corinthians in some ways, and we, we learn about all this in the first seven chapters of, first, of Second Corinthians. By the time we get there, there's been repentance and forgiveness and restoration, and now Paul says, look, after our falling out, I need to make sure that that gift that you said you were going to give to this church in Jerusalem, we need to make sure that you're ready to give it. And what's so interesting is he turns around and he uses the Macedonians now who are giving like crazy to say, I want you to do it just like them. Had their heart, their passion, I want you all to have that. And that's what he did in the, in the very first chapter of uh, or the uh, chapter eight of Second Corinthians. He began to lay out this idea that this group of people had run into the grace of Jesus. Now again, this grace of Jesus that is extravagant, almost on the edge of scandalous. It is so amazing. They caught that, and in direct proportion, they started to give. 
He then also talked about this idea that it's not only this extravagant grace that's landed upon us, but he wanted to make sure that they understood that God, when we say he owns everything, he owns everything. There's not a a single tiny little aspect of this universe that our God is not in absolute control over. He is the God of the universe who controls all things. And therefore, since he owns everything, we can now give something that's not ours in the first place. So therefore, we can give extravagantly. But Paul doesn't want anything to get in the way of this. And we talked about this last week. Just like now, there's religious leaders and religious groups that people have given to, that we've learned that these people are sharks. They've taken advantage of us. And so Paul goes out of his way to explain the integrity of what he was doing. He goes out of his way to explain the process of how this was going to take place. Not necessarily because he felt like he had to, but in that culture, he knew if he didn't explain it, explain it, that could in some way hinder them from giving. And he didn't want the gift to not arrive in Jerusalem. But here's the other thing we learned last week. He wanted it to happen because he didn't want the Corinthians not to grow to be the men and the women that God's called them to be. You will never, let me just say this, you will never be the man or the woman that God has called you to be until Jesus has lordship even over your money. In fact, Jesus all throughout the gospels ties pretty intimately our connection and our heart to money with an understanding of where our heart really is. And so he's saying in there and trying to get it across to them, this is what we're doing. Now, if last week was kind of the the, the middleman of what was going on in this exchange and the integrity that was supposed to happen, what he's going to do now is he's going to talk about, okay, what about the people that give? There's another group of these people, so it's not just the middleman, but now it's the people that are going to be giving or or those of us now that are going to be entrusted with, with resources from God that are his resources How are we now going to be accountable? How are we going to also have integrity in how we give our money? What is it that we need to know, to understand, and to practice? So that's where we're going to be going today. Now, what's really interesting is I ran into a guy, and I think he just, he had a story this Friday that when I was sitting down talking to him, I think is so appropriate to what we're talking about this morning. If last week was the middleman, this guy began to explain to me, I think, just a, a, in a phenomenal, just concise way, what it is we're going to try to accomplish. On Friday, when he, when he came in, uh, we've known each other for several years now. He had moved away from California, um, like a lot of people have moved away from California. But because of various family reasons, he had to come back. Now, you know this. To leave is easy. To come back is brutal. But they knew God was asking them to come back and deal with some of these family things, but they didn't know how it was going to happen. Well, they started to pray and to wrestle, and God just one by one began to affirm different aspects of their moving back, a provision of a job. Uh, They had uh, not only a job, but a job that was going to be able to allow them to live here. But the one thing they couldn't get, which is what almost everybody struggles through, is housing. Now, they found a couple that would take them in and be you know, gracious to them and generous to some brothers and sisters in Christ, but they just kept praying, God, what do you want us to do? Well, they went down, they acted on it, they, they went down and applied for their loan, they found out they could get a, maybe a house that's more of a fixer-upper, kind of the, an entry-level home, so they were very excited about it, but there was one thing they couldn't put their hands on, and that was that stinking down payment. So that's why they came to me. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It really wasn't. Uh, Your offering last week, no. Um, But he just said, now you got to hear this story. 
He said, we've been praying then for a couple weeks and all of a sudden on, July, or on January 1st, I got a phone call from my wife's former boss. And he called up and he said, hey, I just happened to hear you were getting a home and uh, my wife and I want you to come over this afternoon. Can you make it? Well, he's like, what in the world? But he loved the guy. They developed a huge love. This lady had, had worked uh, doing uh, housework for them, just a huge love between both of them. And so they decided to go over. He got over and he sat down in front of him. And this guy's not a follower of Jesus, but he just says to this guy, look, I, I've heard you're buying a house. I, would I haven't even done this for anybody in my family, my brothers, my sisters, but whatever the down payment is, we have it. Well, if you've ever had something like that happen to you before, right? As soon as they got done blubbering and kind of able to talk and they were just blown away. And when they went to actually go to, to submit an offer in a house, the money was right there. Everything was able. And I'm just, you know, I kept, you know, those, those, those times people are telling you stories, you just keep going, no way, no way, no way. And again, this doesn't happen all the time in every way, but this is just one example where the guy looked at me and he said, this is the biggest thing I've learned. God controls everything. If he wants an unbeliever to be able to then understand to give me his money, God can work things just like he did with Pharaoh and any other person throughout time to move them. And he just said, have you ever thought about it, Todd? The resources of God are unending. Why do we treat God like he doesn't have resources that are untold? That's where we're going today. It is so clear that the Bible, as it walks through God's resources, they never end, they never stop, and part of our accountability as people that give is to not give as if God has a minutiae at his disposal, but we have to not only begin to understand, but to practice that our God has inexhaustible resources. He can move things however he wants for his purpose. He does not need our money. Does everybody hear that? God does not need our money. He is absolutely fine. In fact, he doesn't even need us. He wants us. That's our God. And this is what Paul wants us to understand. Us, us as we begin to understand our giving, is we've got to start with the premise that our God has at his disposal everything. Now, what Paul's going to do here when we look at verse 8, and we're just going to take a, or chapter, or chapter 9, verse 1, we're going to take a running start. And so what I want to do is, is I just want to look. Oh, you guys let me get behind again. Stop that. All right. We're going to take a look at verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to kind of unpack what, what I think Paul's trying to tell us today. That, By the way, if you can't tell already, I can't wait to talk about this. But here we go. He writes this. Now, it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, that's just the Corinth was the capital, so he's talking about them, has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But, have you ever noticed there's always a but? I'm sending the brothers that we learned about last week so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise... If some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary, he said, to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Now, here's what he's doing. 
He's saying to them, remember the Macedonians that you spurred on. And I'm just going to keep using this picture throughout this. God had graced them. And in gracing them, they in turn then graced these Jewish Christians, these brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. They were moved, and it says they gave beyond their means. That's what he's talking about when he's saying to them, when they show up and you're not ready to give, and this idea of being humiliated, especially at this point in history, and in that type of a culture that was kind of more of what's called an honor-shame culture, it would have been that it wasn't only humiliating to Paul, it wasn't only humiliating to them, but it would have been a defamation against the God that we serve. Don't do this, is what he's saying. When I show up, I want you to be ready. I want you to be just like them. I want you to be ready to go through the same process as them because I want, and he's going to explain it, more and more to be able to give so that this group of, Jerusalem, this group of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem can experience the love of Jesus Christ in and through the church. Don't do it. Be ready. And even he says, I'm not gambling. I'm sending those three dudes ahead to make sure that they explain to you what it is that we need to be about so that when I get there, we can just grab it and go. Now, the crucial nature of this is that when Paul says in there this grace, what he wanted them to understand is to stop that grace is a serious thing. Now, again, we've been talking about this, that grace, when I understand grace as a limited resource, it kind of almost becomes like a, maybe a cup or a bottle. I somehow think that I need to store up God's grace because at some point, it, I'm only going to have so much, and so I've got to save it for later. And so, therefore, I, create, I, I begin to treat grace as if it's a bottle. The problem is, though, it's unending, so therefore we should not treat grace like it's a bottle because if we treat it like that, we begin to, be, begin to smell like a sponge that's been soaking up water and sitting forever. We begin to reek and to reek of selfishness. Instead, this idea, and if you can just imagine it, is now more of the idea of a funnel. You need a funnel to be able to grab all that it is that God's grace affords you and then you need the capacity to direct it wherever God asks you to go. He wants them to understand, this is what I'm trying to do with you. This is what I want you to get you wrapped around your head. I'm not going to gamble. I'm going to send these guys to you because we got to make sure this is ready to go. Now, why? Why would he be doing that? I think it's so much bigger than saving face, even though that was kind of their cultural context. See, when we come to this next particular verse, in, in, or when we come to the verse in, in verse 8, we're going to skip ahead from 6 and 7. I'm going to come back to that later. He writes this. The reason that you're going to need a funnel is because God is able to make, look at this, all grace abound to you. And we don't have a word for this, but it, it literally would be, it would be the idea of God is able to make all grace overabound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, when your parents, if you, when you were little, used a word over and over and over again, you kind of thought, okay, this is pretty serious. Paul didn't have another way within the Greek language to explain the extravagance of God's grace other than to keep using words like all, 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 every. He goes, I want you to get this. I want you to wrap your minds around this idea that our God is sufficient. 
Our God is sufficient, and not just sufficient, but he has the capacity to work into you exactly what he wants to do, because like I said earlier, he needs nothing, including us, because our God is not a taker, he is a giver. Now, what happens too often with people with what God blesses them with is they begin to think of God as much more of a taker, that God is going to give me so much, and then in a weird way, I'm supposed to give him something back. Generally, what they say is 10%. And in this giving it back, I'm going to give it back almost grudgingly as something that I have to do to stay inside of his blessing. And I'm going to miss the fact, though, that our God is an immense giver. Now, don't go towards this point of saying the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking this God that has the resources of the universe at his disposal. So one of the first things he wants these Corinthians to understand and what I want our cornerstone to understand and to believe is this. No matter what it is, God is sufficient beyond anything that we can ever imagine. Everything. All, 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 every. And then he connects it to this idea of every good work, meaning he will give us what we need all the time to be able to be generous extravagantly. Now, Paul used this as an apologetic with the, with the church in, in Athens, or the church, the people in Athens when he, was, when he was talking to them. Now, just watch what he says here. The God who made the world and everything in it, okay, this would be Yahweh, the true God, being Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. And look at this, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and what's the last word? Everything. He has everything. There was a movie I was watching that day. I think, what was it? Was it uh, Willy Wonka? I don't remember what it was. What do, you, what do you do when you finally realize you have everything? It was a stupid answer that he gave, but what is it like to realize, those of you that follow Jesus, that your father has everything? Everything. See, it changes how we begin to view the resources that he's given us because he's inexhaustible. He's a God that's sufficient for anything that he asks us to do. These good works that he talked about at verse eight are what we have to begin to understand is that God will always provide to be able to do that. Look at verse nine. As it is written, now watch this. He's distributed freely. He's given to the poor, and look at this, his righteousness endures forever. Now, the other night, uh, my wife uh, chose for, for whatever reason, I guess she's trying to teach me um, how to parent. She said, I'm going to leave you alone and go out. So I had the kids, and it was my job to, uh, to cook. And so um, I called up uh, my servants at, at Topper's, and they made me some pizza. And they even delivered it and brought it to my door, you know. And so they showed up at my door, and, and my, my, one of my children goes, runs and grabs the pizza. I'm paying for it, comes back, starts to grab the food, starts to go to the table, moving everybody out of the way in, in my child's wake. And everybody then just began to consume. And I came back in, and I go, what in the world are you doing? Well, my child that had done all that looked up at me and he said, Dad, what would have happened, though, if I didn't get any pizza? I had two larges. <laughs> I walked him over to, like, the, the, okay, my child over to the pizzas. 
I said, look, we have two of them. He goes, yeah, yeah, I know. And then I walked him over to the refrigerator and I opened up the refrigerator in the freezer and I go, and not only that, dude, do you understand that when this is all done, I have all of this that I can give you. And he goes, yeah, but I don't like a lot of that. <laughs> I, not my point. And I close the door, right? And then we even have a refrigerator because we are regulars at, uh, at uh, Costco. But we have a refrigerator outside. And I took him out there and I just said, look, dude, why were you so worried we were going to run out of food? He looked at me and this was the classic statement of a child. Are you ready? I don't know. I looked at him and I said, you're my child. I love you. Everything that I am is at your disposal as your dad. You don't have to worry anything. Try harder. You're my child. Now in verse nine, this idea that he's trying to get across to them, these ones that give freely, that give to the, specifically he says the poor, are these ones in whom his righteousness endures forever. Now this comes from Psalm 112 in which he's talking about these group of people that are marked by righteousness that give, give extravagantly, but the mark of their righteousness is they are God's people. Now this is what's so important about this. This group of people was righteous not just because they weren't guilty, not because in any way they were trying to earn anything, they were like God because they were fully accepted by God. So what he's saying here is that when they demonstrate this reality, they weren't trying to be accepted by God, they were fully accepted by God and out of their acceptance they understood who he was and they could give extravagantly. If you are somebody in here that knows Jesus Christ, you don't, have to, you don't have to in any way give to earn acceptance from God. Let me just say this to you so you hear it clearly. You are fully accepted by God in the person of Jesus. In fact, I've always found that those people that don't fully understand what it means to be accepted in Jesus are always trying to earn in some way his acceptance and they give out of this idea that maybe God will be accepted more. That's sillier than, my, than me looking at my son saying, you have to earn my acceptance. No, he is my son. So what's he saying here? Not only now is God sufficient but this righteousness that he's talking about that also comes to bear in regard to justice for people is that you being fully accepted can now give out of that acceptance. If you struggle with giving, I'm willing to suggest this. Most people that struggle with giving extravagantly don't believe who they are in Christ. If I really believe who I am in Christ, I will give extravagantly. Now, the key here is it tells us what we believe about God, but the other part is, is that those people who give extravagantly, they know God. There's another part of it, verse 10, it keeps going. Also, he who supplies, now this being God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply 
and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now in this, and you can write this down if you take notes, he's referencing back to Isaiah 55, 10 and also the Hosea 10, 12. But the idea that he's saying is if you're my children, won't I provide bread for you? Remember when Jesus was doing the Sermon on the Mount, he kind of did this. He said, why do you worry about tomorrow? Have you not watched how God takes care of the lilies of the field and the birds of the air? If he takes care of them in that way, how much more your heavenly father will take care of you? So he's saying, look, God understands that you need the provision of bread. He'll take care of your needs. He's not asking you to go past that, but there's the next part that is so important. Not only will he supply, but he says he will multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now that seed that's down there is talking about money. And he said to him, listen, just like a farmer that gets the grain of the field to grow and he keeps some of that grain to be able to, to, be able to sow more grain, our God will take and multiply that in ways that you can never imagine. Now he's gonna explain it to us in these next few verses. This is where it starts to get exciting. He said he's gonna give that to you and understand just like a grain of wheat, just like a kernel, that when you put that thing in the ground and it germinates and it comes to life and it buds and we see it in the spring and become green and then over the summer it starts to turn golden brown, one kernel of wheat produces 50 kernels. Do you know that? None of you surprised. I was totally shocked. One seed produces 50 kernels. Now his point here when he's talking about this harvest of righteousness that we're going to learn about more, more weeks, but it means it's going to increase to the point of growing it to its extreme limit. Meaning it's not just going to impact you, but it's going to have an impact. In fact, the way he's going to talk about it is that it's going to stretch itself out. Take for example... The Macedonians were people that heard about this. And when they heard about it, what did they do? They gave more. In this particular context, though, what he's going to be talking about is specifically the Jerusalem church. Look at verse 11. He says, you'll be enriched in every way. He's still trying to get the point across. To be generous in every way, which through us will produce something amazing. Thanksgiving to God. So not only now are you going to learn about his sufficiency in a practiced way, not only are you going to learn about who you are in Christ and who God is, not only now is this thing going to explode, but it's going to explode in such a way now where it's going to now multiply itself, whereas before this money that could have been held here that would have only been a direct thank you God for my money gets extended out. And his point is once it lands out into the Jerusalem church, it explodes in praise and thanksgiving to God. This is exactly what God has been seeking to do. Now, for any of you that are sitting there right now and going, eh, who cares? Then you don't understand, oh God. So often with grace, you'll hear this statement, grace is absolutely free. We don't have to pay God back, which is absolutely true. There's nothing about grace that we do that. But that does not mean that grace doesn't have an expectation of praise. And what Paul is doing here is that God is giving grace to the Corinthians who then give grace in an extravagant way to Jerusalem. And the whole point is when it lands there, it just becomes this resounding praise to God of thanksgiving for all that he's done. In other words, God takes and he multiplies his praise. Now, if you have ever been with a group of people before that have received a gift like this from another church, it's amazing. A few years ago, I got to go to Uganda and I got to deliver a large amount of money 
to a group of churches that were in the particular area. I'll never forget this for as long as I live because as I showed up and to what is us, you know, it was a good sized gift, but to them, it was huge. I remember handing it to the pastor and when I handed it to the pastor, all of a sudden, everything began to break out. They were dancing, they were screaming, they were yelling. Little white me is not sure what to do with myself, you know, so I'm like more of a yay, you know, I didn't know what to do. But he was just going crazy. The gift that came from here that could have been hoarded suddenly translated itself over into another place in Africa and on another side of the world in another group of people suddenly, Hosanna. And that's what they kept saying. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They just kept screaming it. And I kept going this, just like a good little white boy from, from Wyoming. But it was so incredible. This is what Paul is talking about. When this lands there and that seed gets planted in that poor field, do you understand what's going to happen? The church will explode. But he doesn't stop there. Watch this. And by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, out of that relationship you have and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. What's the other thing? It says in there that they will glorify God. Now, that's a weird word sometimes. You know, I just want to give glory to God. Glorify, glorify. We don't even sometimes stop and think, what does that mean? That word glorify does have a direction. It's moving towards God. But the idea is, is they're going to watch you and how you then extend grace and to display who God is. In other words, we've been looking at this word manifest all throughout the book of 2 Corinthians. We're here to manifest God. They will in turn do the same thing, which means they are going to give extravagantly just like you because they want to manifest God. They want to display God. In other words, this one little gift, this one little seed explodes in this miraculous harvest of righteousness, which results in thanksgiving, which results in the glorification of God and God's people doing the same thing, one seed. Can you imagine? I mean, just think about it. I mean, I'll, this is all I had with me today. This one dollar that we look at and go, eh, dig on George, but you know, what can it really get for me? Can you imagine if every time before we gave, and I'm not talking just when we put money in an offering basket or click the, the online giving thing. I'm talking when we're generous. Can you imagine if we really thought of this like a seed that was going to explode? I think too often we like to help people because we like this like inner peace that we get from helping people. It's like, oh, you know, I've helped people. Look how great that I am. No, that's not how God's people give. We give holding this thing. Now just think about it. We give holding this thing going, okay, shut up. Check this out. Inside of this little seed, we have a God that takes and he multiplies this thing beyond anything that we can imagine. I'm not just holding in my hand one dollar. I'm holding in my hand the grace of God and is entrusting it to me. And if I choose to give this particular gift, I know that God has the capacity and the ability to take my one dollar and explode it. See, that starts to change how we think about the money that we give. In it, he's got this grander idea. And in fact, Paul even then goes on and explains it's not just that, but verse 14 is that while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. 
Remember the little church I was telling you about? I was in Africa. So I get all done, you know, and we're dancing and we're singing and we're saying Hosanna, you know, and I'm still going along and it gets all done. And all of a sudden they put me up in this one spot and the guy said, just, just stand there. I'm like, I'm good at standing, sure. And then one by one, I had people come up and they would grab my face and they would say, pass along our love to your church. Let them know we'll be praying for them. I had so many hands on my cheeks from different women and so many men that were holding my hand. They hold hands a lot over in Uganda, which makes me highly uncomfortable. But they were doing this over and over again, reminding me of their prayers for us and their love for us. And they just kept doing it over and over again. By the time I was done, I had my cheeks patted so many times and my hand held by so many men, I didn't know what to do with myself. I looked at the pastor that brought me there when I was done, and I said, what in the world just happened? And he goes, you don't do that. I go, no, I don't touch people, number one. <laughs> I go, number two, he goes, because. That's the joy of sharing. All right, sure, go to the obvious, whatever. But Paul was trying to convey this in its grand sense so that those Corinthians, and they're just like us and we're like them, we hold on to our money much too tightly. And in holding on to it too tightly, he was saying, let that loose, trust God, begin to give extravagantly in all kinds of different ways because our God takes and multiplies it in ways that you will never, ever imagine. And he finishes with verse 15 saying this, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now we might just read past that and go, you know, see that word inexpressible that's up there? Did you know that word never existed before that time in all of history? Paul didn't know what word to use. He was the original George W. Bush making up words just because he was so excited. This word inexpressible has the idea that literally I can't even communicate the awesomeness of that gift. That's what Paul was trying to get across to them. Giving is not drudgery. It's not an exaction. Even the idea is, is when I give, granted, and I throw that seed out there, is every seed going to land in the ground, germinate, bud, grow into a full, mature plant? The answer is no. But for every one that lands in that particular soil, it multiplies itself in ways that we can never imagine. And I'm not talking health, wealth, and prosperity. I'm talking what is due God, the praise of his name, and the transformation of people. I'll tell you what, if that's what giving is about, then sign me up. This is what he's doing. Thank you for that hand of praise. There's more. Now let me go backwards just a little bit to kind of give you more of an idea of what he's talking about. Look at verse 6. I love this when somebody says the point is this, don't you? I wonder what the point is. The point is this. Look at this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. In other words, there's two ways to plant crops. Now, I know many of you didn't grow up like in an agrarian culture like I did in Wyoming. But you can see this in how people plant, especially at the ancient time in which it was. 
There's one way in which you can plant, in which you, you grab your little seed and you, you go along and, and you place your seed in the furrows. If one were just kind of placing in there some limited, uh, rare resource and move along. And Paul's point is, if you choose to do it that way, the problem is, is that you think God is scarce and the reward of it won't be very big. He says, I want you to think differently through this. Now, imagine with me for a second, you gotta take yourself back in time to the way that they used to now sow into the field. The other is of this guy that's walking along with his seed and he's reaching into this giant bag and pulling out a handful of these kernels of grain and he's sitting there and if you've ever seen them, they don't just kind of do this. Well, I gotta stop with the light. They don't do this, they do this over and over they just grab into that bag and everything is a handful that gets thrown all over the place they stride across that field now why do they do that one of the things that I loved to do with my dad was to drive along with him in the tractor and we did it a little bit differently obviously in the 20th century but as you drive along, you had this machine that would just sit there and constantly just throw grain down through what they were drilling into the ground. And as the tractor drove, it was just grain after grain after grain dropping into the ground. I looked at my dad at one point, I was probably about eight years old, and I just said to him, I said, why do we put so much in there? He goes, we put so much in there because we believe we need so much more to that we need to be able to get back. And as you would drive along, I remember just thinking, what happens in that particular kernel of grain? Well, as a kid, you would watch the field, and pretty soon the fields would be covered with snow and nothing's happening, and you're wondering in the back of your head, my gosh, why did we put all of that in there? Couldn't we have taken all that grain to the elevator, and we could have then got more money for it? But that's not what you do. You always save a portion to be able to then replant in the field. And then spring comes. Most times it was through the snow, you would suddenly see this one little green plant beginning to bud up. Pretty soon that green turned to gold and the gold became ripe and the combines would come out and it was truckload after truckload after truckload of grain. We give because we believe something. The farmer puts seed in the ground because he believes something. We give not because we're nice people. I, I know a lot of you, and I know myself. We're not very nice. We give because we believe our God can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ever ask or imagine with our pitiful little amounts that we throw out there. We do it because we love the harvest. We do it because we love to see praise extend itself across a whole planet. We do it because we love it when people come to know Jesus Christ, people that used to not in any way before ever give praise to God, suddenly are transformed inwardly by the Holy Spirit and they become one who used to hit their hammer and say Jesus, or their thumb with a hammer and say Jesus Christ, and now they see Jesus Christ because they love and adore him. 
We love to be able to watch people as they are gripped by the gospel and being gripped by the gospel. They don't just sit in a pew and do nothing. God takes them into their workplace and their neighborhoods and potentially even around the world to begin to throw seed in all kinds of new places. We love it when our globe begins to resound with the greatness of Jesus Christ. We don't just give because we're nice people and we ought to give 10%. We give because our God is in a work doing, uh, doing work all over the world. That's why we give. That was better than the one. In a novel that I ran into, a guy named uh, Oe, I don't even know how to say his name. I think it's Rolvog or something along those lines, but he was telling the story about a an old pioneer that was coming across the United States and he stopped and that became his field. It talks about him then going out to begin to do what he needs to do and now just listen to these words. With what zest, it says, he broke the tough fibered prairie sod which had never been broken before since the beginning of time. And with what reverence he held up the beautiful seed which he has, was to sow on his own ground. The plump kernels appeared to glow with some inner golden light as the warm rays, um, <clears throat> uh, rays of the sun struck full across them, and they seemed to be squirming in the hand that grasped them as if they were charged with a life suddenly roused from somewhere that was seeking release there. What if we looked at our money that way? What if I looked at it and said, man, this stuff, it needs to be released it needs to go. Paul's saying, this is what I want you to be ready to do. Give. Give extravagantly. Now next week, we're gonna answer a lot of questions that I didn't answer today. But I think it's no wonder in verse seven that he says this, each one must decide in his heart, not reluctantly or in compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Why does he love a cheerful giver? He loves those people that see God's work and love to give extravagantly to it. Over this next year, I can assure you, we're going to be coming to you and we're gonna be asking you to give extravagantly. Sometimes it's gonna to be to give extravagantly for here in Simi Valley because I really do believe there's a, there's, a, there's a reason that we're here. We're not here just to take up space. That God has given us an opportunity, but we're gonna to have to learn that we're gonna to have to give to be able to fulfill what I believe God's calling us to do. At Christmas time, all of you stepped forward. And when we asked you to give to the Shears and we asked you to give the Marquezes, you stepped forward and I'm about ready to bring the Shears up here because they're getting ready to leave. And I am so stoked on this because everything they're about ready to be talking about, Cornerstone participated in. We're about ready to see a couple that's gonna to go to another side of the planet and in going to another side of the planet, they're gonna take with them the resources that God entrusted us that then we in a very cool way graced them and they're gonna grace others that are there and by God's grace, wouldn't it be awesome if we saw more and more people amongst the Nagi that begin to praise God, that begin to glorify him with their life and then turned around and did the same exact thing that we did for them. That's why we do what we do. And so I'm going to bring the shears up and I'm going to bring Jared up 
and they're going to bring a close to, to all of this. Good morning. Amen to that, Todd. So Cornerstone has been a sending church for the last 25 years or almost 25 years of existence. We've sent around 55 families either through our congregation or through just partnerships of around the church. We've been in Europe. We've been in South America, Africa, all around the world. And you guys have got to spend a lot of time with the Shears the last nine months as they've been here uh, on the rest as they've been uh, preparing to go back. And they are in Indonesia in a small village uh, in the middle of the jungle doing this work. And we are excited to uh, hear what's been happening in the last couple of months and hear what's going on uh, in the next year or so. But Thomas, as Todd was explaining, we asked our congregation a couple of months, a couple of weeks ago to help you guys get over the limit and get to 100%. Uh, do you want to let us know how that, how that went? Yes, yes. So um, when, we get, when we came back, okay, we've been in Indonesia for eight years. Our last term was four years. And when we came back in May, our recommended support level was like 68%. Um, and so since Christmas, uh, we are at 100%. I think we're actually breaking the 100% mark. So that's the first time ever in the history of our ministry, our time overseas that we've ever been at 100%. So for that, I just want to say thank you. And something that, um, uh, I mean, yes, thank you. I mean, this is what this breaks down to. You're literally clothing us and feeding us. Um, human beings can live on rice and sweet potatoes. I know we've done that. Um, but life is very dull when you have to do that. And I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting us in giving um, to our ministry, giving to our family. And this is what I'm super stoked about because you've seen and experienced the grace of God and because you're getting behind us and behind the work that God is doing there, you have graced us. We're the recipients of that. We are overflowing in joy and thanksgiving towards God because of that. What I'm excited about is we know all sorts of needs and families overseas in Indonesia. We have uh, national co-workers who are, if we're under-supported, they were grossly or are today grossly under-supported. I am so excited because we can now get behind some of them and support them. You ever seen a grown man cry? You, yeah, <laughs> you, you support somebody or give, or give money to somebody who's living at, who's eating nothing but rice. And now all of a sudden he can feed his family chicken for the first time in a couple months. I mean, it's a pretty exciting thing. So we are thrilled that you have given us uh, the opportunity to do that, to take the grace that you've experienced and now pass that on to other families in Indonesia. So thank you. And that's above and beyond the ministry that we're doing uh, among the Nagi people. So, yeah. That's awesome. Thank you, Cornerstone, for being that. So for the last nine months, we've got to spend some time with you guys. And a lot of times, I think a lot of people think, you know, you guys are just home on vacation for the last nine months. That's quite uh, far from the truth. I know it's a lot of work sometimes for missionaries. It's a lot tougher being back, spending all the time with different families and supporters and doing different things. For us at Cornerstone, it has been such a gift to have you guys back. Uh, having you be the family for VBS, we had 500, over 500 of our children uh, get to learn about what it's like to live in the Nagi village as we transform the NPR into a Nagi village. And they taught them all the different things of what it is to be a missionary and how 
they have been teaching the Nagi that their trail is not connected to Jesus and they need, or to God, and they need Jesus as the trail connector to bring them back. And we got to learn all of that. You got to bring the word uh, a couple weeks ago. We've got to have you a part of all the sermons and being into some of the, speaking into that. We've got to teach so many people about what mission is about, why we go out to the ends of the earth. And so thank you guys for being that example. Can you guys just let us know what it's been like for you guys being here? Yeah, so like Jared said, we've been here for nine months and um, it's been a time of rest for our family. It's been a time of encouragement. I feel like we're built up and excited to go back to Indonesia. We leave on Tuesday to fly back. Um, And I wrote some notes because I'm so excited to be a part of this body and I wanted to make sure I covered it all. Um, In past times, being in America, we've had to travel a lot more. We got all our traveling done at the beginning of our time. We've been able to be here in Simi Valley for about six months with you guys. Um, We've built relationships with a lot of you, a lot of new friends um, that we didn't know before. Uh, Like Jared said, we served in VBS with so many of you and um, being able to serve beside you guys in that capacity and hear um, your heart for service here inside of the church, but also outside of the church. So many of you are part of the foster community. Um, so many of you, I heard, have hearts for your neighbors. You're praying for them and seeking opportunity to reach out for them. Um, and for me, I felt an instant connection with you guys um, knowing that we share the same heartbeat to know God and make him known. And that was just such a blessing for me. Um, I felt a sense of kinship with you guys, knowing that we're on mission together. Um, Even though we're leaving, we are your extension in Indonesia. Um, You guys are here doing the same thing. Um, This morning, I turned to my kids and I said, you guys, this is the last time we're singing corporately with Cornerstone. And... um, We love being here on Sundays with you. Um, That's something we don't get in Indonesia, to worship with a body in our own language. And just the privilege to do that, you guys, like thinking we collectively are singing to God and proclaiming who we are as his children, who he is, is, what he's done for us. And it's been so special for us um, to come here every Sunday and hear our pastors preach, to hear it live. It's not a recording that we're watching with lag on our computers, Um, but to hear it live. And even our pastors, you guys, they are so smart. (laughs) Like they, they have been in the word and they have searched the word and they know it, but they're not just full of facts. In searching the word, they have found a person and they have found Jesus. And that's rare, you guys. And so we have just been blessed by our pastors. Um, and, and just to feel like these, are, these men are our shepherds. Like what a privilege um, for us. Um, and just, just we've loved our time here with you guys and feeling like we all are part of this universal church all over the world. We can go to any country and it's like, man, we've got brothers and sisters, but for us to be part of this local church here in Cornerstone, it's been a really special time. And I feel like we're gonna carry that with us over these next three plus years that we're gone, just this time we've had with you. Awesome, so good. (laughs) 
so thank you guys for for pouring into us as we were pouring into you guys. It's, it's been a very wonderful time uh, getting to serve with you guys over the last nine months. So Thomas, will you let us know what the next three and a half years look like, just to give an idea to the congregation, what you guys are entering into and what we can expect and, and see along the way? All right. Um, okay, so we're going to be, our next term is about three, three and a half years. Next time you see Noah, he'll be driving. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> um, or learning how to drive. So um, there are uh, seven Nagi church, or not Nagi churches. I hope that one day. By that seven. time, yeah. yeah. Let's hope. Um, there are seven Nagi villages. Right now, there are churches in two of those villages. And by churches, I don't mean buildings. I mean uh, groups of believers. Um, teaching has taken place, and there are those who have given a clear testimony. There are those who are striving with what little of God's word that they know, striving to walk in accordance with that. Um, so there's still five other Nagi villages that do not yet um, have any kind of teaching, any believers living there. And so our, our goal, our, our striving for the next three and a half years will be to see that these believers from these two other villages are now equipped to go and plant churches to do what we've done in their villages in those other, other villages and to see the church grow in that way. Um, the, right now, I believe there's about 9, 9% of God's word translated into the Nagi language. Um, and so we'd like to see a whole lot more uh, translated in the next three and a half years. So... Yeah, that's what we're looking at. So the generosity for the harvest to come. So thank you guys for going out. So we want to be a part of this journey with you guys. We don't want to send you out and then uh, forget about you until you come back. We want to make sure that we are praying and we are encouraging and we are communicating with you guys. What is about three or so things that we can be praying for on a regular basis on? So prayer requests, the first two are kind of connected, um, that we would have meaningful relationships and be effective communicators. Um, the meaningful relationships, obviously that pertains with any human being that we're going to be interacting with, um, within our family, together, um, the missionaries we interact with, but also the Nagi people themselves. Um, the more we know God, the more we want others to know him and to glorify him also. And um, in order to do that, we need to be effective communicators. Um, when we're speaking with other English people, that's a lot easier than when we're trying to communicate in the Nagi language. And so just continuing prayer um, that we'd become more effective uh, communicators. And then the other one would be um, that our labor would be fruitful. Uh, fruitful labor is something Thomas and I have been talking about just the past couple of months and realizing like we can work really, really hard um, and exhaust ourselves and it's not going to be fruitful. Um, if it's going to be fruitful, it needs to be in restful dependence on the Lord. And um, just that reality, like we don't want to labor in vain. We want it to be fruitful. And if it's going to be fruitful, it has to be because the Lord produced that fruit. And so those three things, um, meaningful relationships, effective communicators, fruitful labor. Awesome. All right. So what we're going to do now, if you are in a home front team or if you're a family of the Shears, either blood or non-blood elders or pastors, if you guys can join us up on stage as quickly as possible, we are going to send them out. So back in Acts 13, the early church uh, sent Paul and Barnabas out. They prayed over them, laid their hands on them, and they sent them out to do the work that the Holy Spirit was calling them to do. And so we're going to follow in that model that we are going to send them out, that we are behind this, that the eldership, the leaders here at Cornerstone are behind the shears to go out and do the work that the Lord is calling them to do. 
So congregation, if you can join us as well. Okay. Jesus, we, we are in awe of you, that you allow us to come beside you and do the work around the world. We thank you for the shears, that they have answered the calling, that you have taken their family all the way over to the ends of the earth to be a part of the harvest that you are doing, Father. This is your work that you allow us to be a part of. Thank you for the generosity of your people, the grace that you've given us that they are now pouring into the shears, that we can be a part of this as well, that they can go out, Father. So we pray for the path that you are bringing them down, that you walk before them, you walk next to them, and you walk behind them, Father, as they go out. Father, we pray for this the next couple of days of, of, of preparing for travel and saying goodbyes, that they can finish well here, Father, that they can go out and, and feel proud of the way they left to be able to go and be concentrated on the work that you have set before them, Father. We pray for the relationships that they have, Lord, that they are strong and they are on the foundation of you, Father, that you use them, you use their words to be effective, Father, that the relationships have a, a, just a multiply and multiply because it is a reflection of who you are in them. And Jesus, we pray for the labor, mm-hmm. Lord, that they know and have wisdom of where they should be um, spending their time, where they should be spending their resources. Lord, there is a lot to do. There is many things to do that they would never be able to do at all. So you, you guide them in that. Lord, you help them. You give them grace with themselves, peace uh, amongst um, each other, Lord, in their marriage and in their family, Father. We are honored to be a part of this. We, we are uh, thank you in advance for the work that you are doing, um, Lord, for the, for the seven churches that we hope to hear about uh, in three and a half years, for a full Bible uh, in, your, yes, in their language, in the Nagi language, Father. We pray for more workers. Mm. Lord Jesus, you are good, and we praise your name. Amen. Amen.